You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, starting in verse 24. We're going to be reading our next parable. So over the past couple of weeks, we're currently in a series in which we are looking at the parables of Jesus. You know, one third of, of all of the teaching that Jesus did that's recorded for us in the Bible is in the form of parables, which are these short stories, these illustrations which Jesus used to teach important spiritual truths. So each week as we're in this series, we're looking at one or two of these parables and we're considering what they mean for us and what they mean for how we live today. So if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bibles, if you read on your phone, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app. We've got live notes in there if you go into the menu and click on the events section. So let's go ahead and begin today by reading our text, which comes from Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and came away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather up the weeds? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We're going to go now to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered and said, The man who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is an eternal Word that speaks to us, and we thank You that it speaks to us today. In whatever situation we've come in here today, Lord, we believe that there is something that Your Word wants to speak to us. So we come with expectation, and Lord, we ask that truly You would speak to us and that we would hear, and that we would not only hear and understand these things, but that we would apply them in our lives. Lord, we ask that You would help us, that we would live for Your glory and, and for the good of this world on mission with You. Lord, we also ask that as we receive Your Word, that it would bear much fruit in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a pastor, one of the questions I'm most frequently asked is, if God is a good God, well then why is there evil in the world? Why are there bad things in the world if God is good? And a related question is this, well, okay, maybe there's evil in the world, but if God is all-powerful, well then doesn't that mean that he could get rid of evil if he wanted to? So why doesn't he? If he could, why doesn't God just get rid of evil and suffering from the world? 
How many of you have ever wondered about that? It's a very common question. In fact, if you, if you look at the Bible, the oldest book chronologically that was written in the Bible is the book of Job, which deals with and addresses that very question. Why is there evil in the world? And why is it that if God could do something and just get rid of evil and suffering and bad, why doesn't he? At least not yet. And, and here in this parable, Jesus actually addresses that question. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you how that is this uh, Sunday morning as we talk about it. He addresses one of the big questions of life, which is, what is wrong with the world and what is the solution to the problem? So I'm really excited to look through this parable with you because there's so much depth in here and there's so much that's packed into this little story and it has so many implications for how we understand God and how we understand our lives today. The title of today's message is Separating the Weeds from the Wheat. And in this text, Jesus addresses two very important and very practical topics. First of all, how should we view the world? And secondly, how should we relate to people? And the way that Jesus goes about addressing these topics is by telling a story about a farmer. You know, Jesus was an excellent teacher, very interesting teacher. And one of the primary ways that Jesus taught was by using pictures and illustrations. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which simply means a comparison, it's to make a comparison. It's a metaphor. It's to say, this is like this, holding two things up side by side. And Jesus used to uh, use parables to take abstract spiritual truth and concepts and ideas and put them in terms that people could relate to and understand. Things like farming and gardening or business or an invitation to dinner even. And here in Matthew chapter 13, from verses 24 to 30, we see the parable itself. It's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And then from verse 36 to verse 43, Jesus actually explains what this parable means to his disciples. And this parable has three parts. First of all, we see the work of the farmer. It begins with the work of the farmer in verse 24. And here's what the farmer did. He sowed good seed in his field. The second part of the parable is the work of the enemy. The enemy came in at night, the farmer's enemy came in and sowed a bunch of weeds, bad seeds in his field. Kind of like if you uh, wanted to mess up your neighbor's lawn. I have this thing with my next door neighbor. We kind of compete as to who has the better lawn. Well, I don't know if he's really competing because he's not keeping up. I'll just tell you that. But uh, it'd be like if I really wanted to mess up his lawn and make sure that my lawn looked better, I could go over there and get all the, a bunch of dandelions, right? And like blow a bunch of dandelion seeds in his yard when he's not watching. That's kind of like what this guy did, only um, more destructive because these crops are actually this person's livelihood in, in a society like that. So in English, uh, now it just says weeds, right? We Okay, he planted some weeds. But it's interesting, if you look at the Greek text, it actually tells us what kind of weeds these were. It uses the word zizania, which zizania is a specific kind of weed. And um, in English, it's called darnel, so bearded darnel. So what darnel or zizania is, is it's a degenerate form of wheat. And what that means is that when it's growing up, it looks just like wheat in its younger stages, but when it reaches full maturity, zizania or danes never produce a head of grain. So they're kind of related to wheat, but they're not wheat. They never produce a head of grain. So it's all stalk and no grain. So it's considered an invasive plant and a weed, something that if you are a farmer would be a big problem. And so by sowing a bunch of these seeds, this zizania or danes, or sorry, darnel in the field, what the enemy was really doing was he was making a big problem for the farmer. It was a very rotten thing to do. Because as these two plants would grow side by side, it would be very difficult to tell them apart. 
They might look the same in their infancy. And so zizania, as it grows, of course, it's not wheat. It's not going to produce a crop. And it's just using up the water and the mineral resources and the nutrients from the ground that the wheat needs in order to grow. So it would hurt the crops and it would diminish the yield. Now, historically, this was actually a pretty common thing for competing farmers to do to each other's crops is that you would, like in any business, right, you want to get an edge on the competition. And so people would go in and they would actually sabotage each other's fields. And there was a Roman law on the books which addressed this very action. It says, if you went into somebody else's field and you tried to sabotage their crop by planting weeds or planting bad seeds amongst their crop during the planting time, then you could be charged and punished with a crime according to Roman law. Because it was a malicious and a destructive act. You were ruining their crop, which was their livelihood. So that's the second part of the story, is the work of the enemy. The third part of the story, and this is really where, where the heart of the story is, is in verses 26 through 30, where we see the farmer's strange decision. The farmer's strange decision. Okay, let me explain. When the farm workers see that there are weeds growing up amongst the wheat, the first question they ask the farmer is, how did this happen? Did you, did you sow bad seeds? And the farmer says, no, 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 I planted good seeds for sure. This is the work of an outside force. This is an intrusion. This is an attack. The enemy did this. And so the farm workers then say in verse 28, so do you want us to to go in and, and pluck out all the weeds? And the farmer says, no. I don't want you to do that because if you do that, I mean, in their infancy, the weeds and the wheat look very similar to each other. And you might accidentally pull up some of the wheat, the good wheat, uh, thinking that it's weeds. And so he says, just let them grow together until the harvest. And then at the harvest, we'll deal with it. We'll separate them and, and we'll burn the weeds and we'll gather the wheat into the barn. Now, I'm not a farmer. I've never really had uh, any experience with farming. Maybe some of you have. I'm guessing that the majority of us have not. But the good news is I have a friend who's a farmer. And so I called this friend of mine this week and I asked him, you know, as a farmer, how does he read this story? What, what is his perspective on this story from a farming point of view? And here's what he told me. He said that from a farming perspective, what the farmer says here completely goes against regular farming practice and even kind of against common sense. Because the weeds, weeds are every farmer's arch nemesis and and you don't just fight weeds at the harvest like it would be crazy for a farmer to say no I'm not going to do anything about the weeds I'm just going to let them grow and I'll just I'll deal with them later no he says no farmer would ever say that weeds are uh, farmers are dealing with weeds all the time they start from the beginning of the season to the end of the season they're always going out and trying to nip those things in the bud and make sure that they never start growing so it would be totally weird for a farmer to say something like this like no we're not going to pull the weeds out we're just going to let them grow and uh and we'll deal with them later no farmer would do that and so the farm workers when they hear this they would have been shocked by this, this idea, like, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't we pull them up? Because normally, you're out fighting weeds all season. In fact, this farmer I was talking to this week said that he was going out at that very moment to deal with weeds in their fields. I mean, it's just what they do constantly. And so uh, this farmer's decision in this parable, I think that the shock value of it is lost on those of us who don't really understand farming. But if you do understand farming or which most of the people in Jesus' time did, they would have realized that this is a very surprising decision that the farmer would have made to let the weeds just grow. So first of all, what does this parable tell us? First of all, this parable addresses the question of how should we view the world? So how should we view the world? In Jesus' explanation of the parable, in verse 38, and this is really key. To understand the parable, you have to understand this point. In verse 38, Jesus says, 
The field is the world. The field is the world. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the world and how we should understand and make sense of the world. And the reality of the world that we live in, and it's here in this parable, is that in the reality, the reality of the world that we live in is that there is both good and bad. And it exists side by side. There is good in this world and there is evil in this world. And it's really important that we catch this. God is not the author of evil. Right? God is the author of good. The reason there is evil in this world is because an enemy has come in and sought to sabotage and corrupt God's good earth. But in the end, here's what we see. In the end, God is going to root out all the weeds. He's going to weed out all the evil in the world and everything that causes evil. And he will separate the good from the bad, the weeds from the wheat, and the weeds will be destroyed and the wheat will be saved. But the time for that to happen has not yet come. See, we tend to be like the farm workers in this story, right? We look at this, we look at the world and we say, God, if you're a good God, then why is there evil in the world? And God's answer, which we see here in the parable is, the evil is not of me. I didn't plant it in the world. I planted good seed. This is a foreign element. This is an intrusion. This is an attack from the enemy. So that's how we should understand evil. But then, of course, the next question we always ask is, which is related to the first is, okay, well, God, if you are good and you're all-powerful, then why don't you get rid of it? If, if, if it's so bad, if it's so destructive, why don't you just get rid of it and wipe it all out? Why don't you just uproot the evil from the world? And here's the answer, which is here in the parable. God will indeed do that one day, but that day is not yet here. And like the farm workers in the story, we tend to say, why? Well, what are you waiting for? Why not do it right now? What, why the delay? And the answer that Jesus gives us here in this parable is incredible. He says this, here's why. Because the story isn't finished yet. And some of what looks like weeds right now, before it's all said and done, will actually be wheat. Some of what looks like weeds right now, before it's all said and done, will actually be wheat. And he's saying, I don't want any of the wheat to be destroyed. I don't want any of it to be uprooted or destroyed before that time comes. And so we will wait. You see, the context in which Jesus was speaking was in Israel at a time when the nation of Israel was under occupation by an outside force, the Roman Empire. And of course, they didn't like being occupied by Rome. They wanted to be free. They longed for freedom. And their holy scriptures had talked about how one day God was going to send a liberator, a redeemer, a leader called the Messiah. And this Messiah, it told them several things about him. He would be the descendant, a direct descendant of King David. And he would establish the greatest kingdom that has ever existed. And that kingdom would be based out of Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, the Messiah would rule over all the nations of the earth. And his reign would be characterized by justice and peace and the knowledge of God. And his kingdom would last forever. And so the people of Israel looked at that and they said, wow, well, that must mean... That must mean then that God is going to send us a, a political leader. He's going to send us a military leader. He's going to send us someone who will drive out the Romans and reestablish Israel as a world power rather than just some dusty corner of somebody else's empire. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's not exactly what the people were hoping for, but people keep saying he's the Messiah, and Jesus keeps saying that he's the Messiah, and people are like, well, as we were kind of thinking there'd be some kind of you know, muscular like uh, kind of military guy, but hey... This must be him because he keeps talking about the kingdom of God. So that, that's what we want. We want this kingdom. And, and they say, they get excited. They say, he's the one. He must be the one. He's going to drive out the Romans. He's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to make Israel great again. But what Jesus keeps telling them over and over 
especially here in these parables. Matthew chapter 13 is a series of parables which are called the kingdom parables in which Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven is like this. You see, because they thought the kingdom of heaven was was going to be a political uh, kingdom. But Jesus says, look, uh, you guys don't get it. You, you, you still, you're still thinking too small. You see, in your desire for a political solution, you're thinking too small. I've come to do something much bigger. He says, you're only looking for, for a political solution, but everything that's wrong with the world, it can't just be solved by politics. It can't just be solved by military intervention. You're not going deep enough. I think that can be true of us a lot of times, right? We tend to, to think too shallowly about what we need or about what the, what the real root of the problem is. And we tell God, okay, God, here's what I need. Now I need you to go get this done, okay? Like we say, I know what's wrong and I know what you need to do, God, but, but I can't do it, but I need you to do it. And so we'll say things like, here's the problem, God. I, I need a new job. That's the problem. I need a new job. So can you get me a new job? Okay, thanks, right? And we say, okay, God, here's the problem. I'm single. This is the problem. I'm single and I need you to get me a relationship. Or we say, okay, here's the problem, God. It's this person I'm married to. They're the problem. Or it's my kids. They're the problem. They're the problem. Please fix them. Okay? But God would say, hey, hold on. You're not going deep enough. You're not going deep enough. The real issue is deeper than than you think it is. And the solution is actually much grander and much more comprehensive than than what you have in mind. Jesus is telling these people, he says, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine just for a minute a world in which there is no sorrow, a world in which there is no hatred, a world in which there is no grief. I want you to imagine a world without poverty, a world without sickness, without injustice. Imagine a world without death. I want you to imagine a world without loneliness, without guilt, without unhappiness. Imagine a world without mental illness or family breakdown. Imagine a world in which all of the brokenness that we experience in this world, emotional brokenness and social and spiritual uh, brokenness, all of that has been completely eliminated and everything is the way, the way that God intended it to be and, the w- and everything that God wants for you becomes a reality. He says, that is the kingdom of God. That is what I have come to bring to you. See, the kingdom of God is not a physical realm. The kingdom of God is an order of reality in which God reigns as king. In the kingdom of God, everything that is broken will be healed and made right. Evil and sin and suffering will be gone forever. And that is coming. In fact, Jesus said, it is even here now in part, but the day is coming when it will come in fullness. He says, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like farming, right? Because when you farm, a farmer, he sows a crop in a field, but then there's a period of time, right? Between the planting and the harvesting. And that's where we're at today. Jesus came and he brought this revolution. And if you receive him, then you become a son or a daughter of the kingdom. And he makes you into something new from the inside out. And yet, there's still evil in this world. Things are still broken. Because the day is coming still when God will eradicate evil once and for all and make things right. But that day's not here yet. And do you know why that is, he's saying? Do you know why God waits? And here's why. The reason God waits is because God, on the one hand, hates evil, but on the other hand, loves people. God hates evil, but he loves you. He hates evil, but he loves people. You see, the problem with the world isn't just that there is evil in the world. The problem is actually bigger than that. It's not just that there's evil in the world and that the world has been corrupted. The problem is that that evil has even gotten inside of us. It's wrapped its roots around our roots. You see, 
it's that not just that the world has been corrupted, it's that we ourselves have been affected by it. We have been corrupted. And so there's this conundrum. And this conundrum is really the great, the great conundrum upon which the whole, the gospel is predicated. And that's this, that on the one hand, God is absolutely committed to eradicating evil and getting rid of evil forever. But on the other hand, God loves us and wants to save us. And, and to destroy evil would necessitate well, it would necessitate destroying us as well. And so what is God going to do? What is God going to do? How can God destroy evil without destroying us? That is the story that the Bible tells. That is the whole basis for the gospel, which is the good news. You see, there's this conundrum. God loves us, but yet he, he hates evil. But yet the evil has come inside of us. It's wrapped its roots around ours. But here's the good news. The good news is that God made a way for us to be saved by sending Jesus. Jesus came and he was destroyed on our behalf in order to redeem us so that we could be saved. And what that means is that in the miracle of all miracles, weeds can actually become wheat. In the miracle of all miracles, and it is a miracle, weeds can actually become wheat. See in verse 38 of the parable, Jesus says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one but the wheat are the sons of the kingdom. And the Bible tells us this in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It tells us that all who receive him, all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives them the right to be called the children of God. And it says this in Colossians chapter 1, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Do you catch what that's saying? What it's saying is something incredible. It's saying this, that if you receive Jesus, if you trust in him and rely on him and cling to him and what he has done for you on the cross, then you will be transformed from being a weed destined to be gathered up and destroyed. And you can actually become, you can be made into, transformed into wheat destined to be saved and brought into the house of God. And in light of this, it's really interesting that Jesus actually uses this particular illustration. Because remember, we said that he didn't, he's not just talking about weeds in general. He's talking about a specific kind of weed, zizania or, or darnel, which is a degenerate form of wheat, right? It's related to wheat, but it's a degenerate form. And so the, the picture here is not of a, of a dandelion becoming a stalk of wheat, but a degenerate form of wheat being restored and healed to the fullness of what it was originally created to be. And don't you see, that is the picture of us. That's the picture of what God does in you when you believe that God begins this work of making you into something new, but that something new is ultimately a work of restoring you to what he originally created you to be, but which has been corrupted and shaded by sin and evil and corruption in the world because of the enemy. And so that's the thing that we see here. God's work in you of redemption is a work of making you into the true you who he created you and intended you to be. So why doesn't God just root out evil in the world right now? Why does God wait? The reason is because God's not done. He's not done saving people. He's not done transforming weeds into wheat. You know, there's this very famous quote that I love by this man named Nicholas Volterstorff. And he says this. He says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. What that means is that the, the only reason there is a history is because God chose to shed tears rather than just to wipe out evil and spare himself the pain that evil causes him. See, what that means is that evil and sin, it grieves the heart of God, and yet 
God allows it to persist, which we see here in the parable. Even though it causes him pain personally, he allows it to persist. Why? So that more and more people can be saved and redeemed and brought into his kingdom. In Genesis chapter 6, we read this this very uh, interesting section where it says that God looked upon the world that he created and he saw the sin and the evil in it and he saw the corruption and it says that it grieved him to the heart. It grieved him to the heart. That, that same word that's mentioned there, grieved, it's used only a few other places in the Bible. It's a very strong word. One of the other places where it's mentioned is to describe the feeling that a wife has when her husband abandons her. Grieved to the heart. Heartbroken. And as much as the brokenness of this world bothers us and grieves us, understand that it is even more so for God. It breaks his heart. He weeps over it. It it isn't just that he made this world and he's kind of passive about it, but his heart is intimately tied to it. And so he sees evil and brokenness in the world and it breaks his heart. And so you realize that he could just spare himself all that heartache. He could just spare himself all the hurt and the pain of, of seeing brokenness in the world by just getting rid of it by just wiping it all out, by just judging the world now and being done with it. So why does he wait? Because there are more and more people that he wants to save and bring into his kingdom. Let me ask you, aren't you glad that he waited for you? I know I'm glad that he waited for me. So how should we view the world? It's a good world, but there's brokenness and there's evil in it. But that brokenness and the evil, it's not from God. It's the work of the enemy. And God will one day indeed wipe everything out that is wrong. He will wipe out evil and make everything right. And that day is coming, but it's not here yet. And the reason why God waits is because there are people who are not yet part of his kingdom, but they will be. And so he waits. Let me tell you this. If you view the world in this way, it will give you an incredible sense of peace and stability and an incredible sense of hope and confidence. Because you know that even if it's not here yet, that day is coming. That day is coming when justice will flow like a river and sickness and death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And the reason it's not here yet is because God is still on a mission to bring more people into his kingdom so they can be transformed and saved. And what that means for you and me is that as we wait for that day to come, we too get to participate in that mission. And that's what brings us to our second point. How should we relate to people? So how should we see the world? But secondly, how should we relate to people? What this parable tells us is that in this world there are some people who love God and serve God and that there are other people who don't love God and serve God. And, and so how should we relate to those people? Wherever they're at on the spectrum, right? Whether they're, they're on the, the apathetic side, they just don't really care about spiritual things, or whether they're on the, the really aggressive, kind of vehemently opposed side of things. How should we relate to people who aren't Christians, who don't to love God and serve God? I've got three ways for you today. Uh, number one. We should engage, not avoid. We should engage, not avoid. If the reason that God waits is because he's still on a mission to bring more people into his kingdom, we actually get to be part of that work. So we're called to be salt and light in this world and to live and to speak in a way that impacts people around us so they might turn to God and seek him and be saved. But see, salt, if it stays in a salt shaker, it doesn't do much. It doesn't doesn't affect very much. And if you take light and you never take it into dark places... It never affects much. And sometimes Christians can have this habit of, of cloistering together, either out of fear or, or simply sometimes, mostly, most of the time maybe, just out of comfort. We can have this tendency to cloister together and organize our lives so that we don't ever have to interact with people who don't believe like us or think like us. But see, if we do that too much, 
Here's what happens. We, we lose the opportunity to be salt and light, which is what God has called us to be as Christians. You know, part of our mission here at Whitefields is that we always say this. We want to be people who are on mission with God. Our mission statement, by the way, of our church, part of it is this, that we exist to make disciples of Jesus by teaching the word of God, engaging in the mission of God, and raising up leaders. But that engaging in the mission of God part, what does that mean? What it means is that our goal is to actively engage people here in our community, people around us and beyond our community, so that God might even use us in order to bring the good news of the gospel into their lives so that they could experience that transformation. And that's why, for example, if you look at our summer calendar, we have a series of events where we have organized, you know, intentionally that we are going to put ourselves in locations where, where people are and we want to we interact with people. We want to put ourselves in their path so that as a, as a church we have the opportunity to meet people and be salt and light in this community. But I want to tell you this, not only do we do that as a church, we want you to do that uh, as an individual and as a family in every part of your life. We want you to have that missional mentality because God is on a mission and we get to join him in that. And what an awesome privilege and important calling it is for us to be part of his work of bringing transformation and redemption and salvation into people's lives. And so we don't avoid people who are not Christians, people who don't think or believe like we do, but we engage them because to be a Christian means to be a person on mission with God. The second way that we relate to people is we make judgments, but we don't render judgments. We make judgments, but we don't render judgments. It's a really important difference, by the way, between making judgment and rendering judgment. Maybe you'd say, okay, I hear what you're saying about engaging people, right, and not avoiding people, but, but what about somebody who's maybe a bad influence on me or on my family? Um, what about somebody who is not trustworthy? What about somebody that I don't feel safe around? What about somebody who's just openly doing something that is so wrong and, and I can't agree with it and I can't be party to it? It's really important to understand the difference between making judgments and rendering judgments or, or what you might call passing judgment. See, making judgments is a good thing. It's a wise thing to do. We all make judgments each and every day. And in fact, the Bible encourages us to make good judgments. See, making good judgment is when you say, I'm not going to do this or that thing because it's wrong or, or I won't do it because it will hurt me and it will hurt my relationship with God or I'm not going to do that because it would endanger my children or I'm not going to go around that person or let that person be around my family because I can't trust them and they're a bad influence or they're a danger. You see, we make judgments all the time and we should make these kinds of good judgments. We should use good judgment and we, uh, we should make ju judgments. But there's a difference between making good judgment and rendering judgment. See, rendering judgment is when you pronounce a verdict over somebody. It's when you stand above them and look down on them and pass judgment as, from a condescending kind of way, in a self-righteous way, where you look down on someone and say, I am better than you. It's when you say, you're a weed, and you'll probably always be a weed, and so you write them off, and you render a judgment, and you pronounce a verdict. Now, sometimes Christians can get sidetracked with... Uh, trying to figure out who exactly is in God's kingdom and who's not. Like we ask questions like, okay, if somebody's done this, then can they still be saved? Like what about those, what about these people? What about this group of people? Are they saved? You know, or, or what about people who've done this? Can they be saved? What about these people? What about them? The good news is that decision is not up to you. And it's not up to me. And I'm really glad because I don't want to have to make that decision. It, it's God's job to render judgment. We get to love people, minister to them, share with them, and encourage them. And in the end, it's not our job to, to judge who's in and who's out. That's God's job. 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use good judgment. Again, we absolutely should use good judgment. There's, so it's really important to make that distinction. You know, we should seek to know God's word. We should share it with people. We should refute bad doctrine if necessary. And we should, we should have standards based on God's word. We should say these things are right, these things are wrong. And if someone's doing something which is wrong or harmful, then we should address it. We should address it lovingly and truthfully, even strongly if necessary. Not because we're judging them, not because we're condescending, but because we care about them. The purpose of doing it is never self-righteousness or being condescending or judgmental. It's always for that person's own good. It's to help them and to be restorative out of concern for that person and their relationship with God. So one reason we don't uh, render judgment is also because the story isn't over yet. We see that here in our parable. So we don't give up on people. We don't write them off. We don't render a judgment and say, you are a lost cause. You're irredeemable. And here's why. Because the story isn't over yet. What this parable tells us is that there are some in the world who look like weeds right now, but the story isn't over. God's not done with them. And the time hasn't yet come when it's all said and done. And some of those are going to actually become wheat before it's all over. I think about the Apostle Paul. If ever there was a person who people thought, that's the last person who will ever become a Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. You know, I imagine when he showed up at his high school reunion, people looked at him and they were like, what? You became a Christian? I would have never thought that you would become a Christian. Paul's like, I know, right? I'm totally surprised myself. See, Paul had been a hater of Christians. He had been a persecutor of Christians. But then God did this amazing, surprising work in his life. God spoke to him and called him out. And Paul became a Christian. He went on to become a missionary and a pastor and spread the gospel throughout the world. God used him to write several books of the Bible. And so God would encourage us, hey, don't forget, I'm not done yet. Story isn't finished. I'm not done transforming lives and saving people. And you just leave it to me. I'll sort it out in the end. Who's in and who's out of my kingdom. Your job, you go and you show people my love, my truth, my grace. The third way that we're to relate to people, we reach out rather than attack. Reach out rather than attack. So my wife and I, one of our favorite trips that we've taken, we like to travel. One of our favorite trips that we've taken was uh, before we had kids, we spent a week driving around the Czech Republic and, uh, you know, one of the things that we wanted to see in the Czech Republic are castles. They have so many castles in the Czech Republic. Let me give you some perspective on how many castles. So many castles that by the end of our trip, like one week in the Czech Republic, we had seen so many castles that we actually drove right past this castle. Like, it's right there. And I didn't even bother looking at it. I was just like, I've seen enough castles. If I see another castle, I'm going to throw up, right? I just, it's too many castles. And Rosemary's like, should we stop and take a picture? And then we were both like, nah. Let's just go to like McDonald's or something. Like, I, just, I don't want to see any more castles. But the other thing the Czech Republic is famous for, other than castles, is atheism, right? Like the Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. And if you ask any Czech person why that is, they're going to tell you it's related to their history. The reason that they are cold towards Christianity has a lot to do with their history because the Czechs found themselves right in the middle of of like people doing exactly what Jesus tells us not to do here in this parable, right? Like for centuries, people were going on and, and uh, they were trying to root out all the other people who they thought were wrong about God. And so you had the Inquisition and you had the Catholics killing the Protestants, then you had the Protestants killing the Catholics, then you had people getting burned at the stake and thrown out of windows of tall buildings because they believed the wrong thing about baptism or because they left your particular church. And you can understand why these people are like, well, I'm not sure that those people are good people, right? And in each of these cases, what were people doing? They were trying to help out God by rooting out the weeds. 
the people who were wrong. But that's exactly what God tells us not to do here in this parable. Rather than attacking those who don't believe, we're called to reach out to them. And here's why. Because people who aren't Christians are not our enemies. I'm going to say that again, just so we all understand. People who are not Christians are not our enemies. And we should never treat them like they are. Check out this parable. It tells us that there is an enemy. And guess who it is? Verse 39. It says the enemy is the devil. It's right there. But people who aren't Christians, they're not our enemies. We, we shouldn't treat them as if they're enemies. We shouldn't take an antagonistic posture towards them. And rather than attacking them, we should reach out to them in love and with grace and with the message of the gospel so that we could be part of God's mission of transforming weeds into wheat so that they can be saved. There's one last thought I want to leave you with today. It's from this parable. So just as some of, the, some of what looked like weeds actually turned out in the end to be wheat... Well, the opposite is also true. That's inherent to this story. Some of what looked like wheat would actually also turn out to be weeds. Remember, that's the point of the parable, that these, these two plants, as they're growing up, they, they're almost identical. They're hard to tell apart. And that's why the farmer says, no, 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 just, just let them grow so that we can see how it turns out because these two plants, they can be hard to tell apart and I don't want you to go uprooting things and uproot the wrong things. But what that means is that there are people in the world who look like Christians. In fact, they might even think that they're Christians, but they're not. And that's a sobering idea, really. Uh, maybe even a, a slightly frightening idea. That, that there are people in this world who look like Christians. They're moral. They're decent. They might even go to church sometimes. By all outward appearances, you'd look at them and they say, well, looks like a Christian to me. But what Jesus is saying by the end of, at the end of the day might turn out that they're not. Again, that's a very sobering thought. And I think it's meant to be sobering. I think it's meant to make us ask the question, wait a second, okay, so, so where am I at? And maybe there are some of you today and you're wondering, okay, so how can I be sure? How can I be sure? I want to be saved, but I wonder, you know, how can I know for sure? Well, here's what you have to do. It's if you will say with sincerity from your heart, if you will say to God, you know, Lord, uh, Lord, uh, I, if I've never done this before, I want to do it now. I want to nail it down so that I can be sure beyond any shadow of a doubt. Jesus, you're my Savior. I can't save myself. Uh, you took my place in judgment on the cross so that I could be saved and transformed. And so, Jesus, I embrace that. I embrace what you did for me. And I put my faith and my trust in it. I cling to it. I rely on it. And I no longer look to myself to be my own king and my own Savior. But I look to you to be my Savior and my king, I'll tell you this, if you do that in sincerity from your heart, then you can know with certainty that you are a son or a daughter of the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for your promise to us. Lord, that if we come to you and we, we ask you to save us, if we cast ourselves before you, Lord, you will, you will pick us up and you will save us and you will redeem us. And so, Lord, I thank you for that promise. And I pray for all of us here today. Lord, I, I know that none of us want to be weeds. And so, Lord, I pray that today, if there's anyone who has any doubt in their mind or in their heart as to where they stand with you, I pray that today would be the day where they say, Lord, Lord if, if never before, I want to make sure that I do this now and say, Lord, I thank you for what you did for me. You are my Savior. I can't save myself. And Lord, you be my King. I, I'm, I'm done with trying to steer this ship. But I pray for all of us today that we would come to that place of surrender to you. Thank you for your love for us. We see that here. Thank you that you waited for us, even at pain to yourself. Lord, thank you that the day is coming when all will be made right. We look forward to it. Until that day, help us, Lord, that we would live on mission with you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.